I think we need to become very proud and and invest in our interest and our passion and our our belief that there are better farming systems. Let's spend more on our food in order to support what we believe in by taking that step to invest. Invest in in your own health by choosing this food, invest in your community by supporting these small businesses, invest in the environment by choosing food that actually sequesters carbon. Whatever that is, take that first step because the next step beyond that will be so much easier. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, truth be told, I'm drawn to doing podcasts because I get to speak to interesting people. And one of them that I've become a fan of is Ben Glasson. And Ben, you're um, you're a listener. You've been a guest before, but you're also in a journey yourself that I really admire. And, and I really am happy that we can come back and have another conversation because you have been a guest before. It's been a little while before that you had first identified yourself to me as a listener. And then you reached out and then we communicated and we had you on a podcast and and we're going to talk about some other ways that we get involved in conversations these days, including on club. But Ben, welcome back to Farm to Table Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Roger. You know, it seems like a lifetime ago that we recorded our first episode, but I think it was just about two years ago in 2019. And boy, uh, a lot of progression in my farm since then, I tell you. You know, um, well, that's what we want to start off with that, because I think there are some people listening today that maybe missed the one a couple of years ago when we had a, had our conversation. And and uh, so why don't you describe your farming operation? Then we'll back in a little bit and how you got into it. But what are you doing? I consider myself a regenerative livestock manager. And so the four principles that I farm with are first detach the land ownership from the farming. So lease land or borrow land or barter for land, instead of investing all of your uh, hard-earned savings into buying an expensive piece of land, lease land is super affordable. Second of all, we use mobile infrastructure that can be moved onto the land easily, but can also, we can move our animals across the land. So we're never overburdening one section of land. Instead, we're adding fertility and we're increasing productivity by moving our infrastructure across the land. And on the vegetable side of things, this mobile piece is, you know, having the, being nimble to move your greenhouse from one side to the other to a different plot, especially when we're starting. We want to be nimble uh, so we can make changes as we learn. The third piece is modular infrastructure. So having uh, small units, we can scale up and down easily. An example of that this year is that I had a batch of 300 broilers, um, and I had a big loss through the through the drought that we had here and the and the heat wave. And so it, I have three chicken tractors, and usually I have them filled with 300 each. Um, I did a makeup batch where I got a hundred started birds. And so I, I dropped from three tractors. I was able to scale down to one chicken tractor for this batch of 100 in order to make up for that, those losses. 
Now, on the other side of things, next year, I will scale from three chicken tractors to five chicken tractors. So increasing my economies of scale by using these modular infrastructure to scale up. Now, the last piece is the most important, direct marketing. So the farmer needs to hold on to as much of the food dollar as possible. You know, we see our friends across North America who are uh, commodity producers. They are price takers. Whatever the market says at the auction, that's what they're getting for their livestock. Now, for me, I set my price based on my costs. So I can set, this is the price per pound that it costs you to have one of my Christmas turkeys. It's $7.50 per pound. And people are like, wow, that's twice, three times more than I've ever paid for a, a Christmas turkey. But they're willing to pay that additional price because they understand the benefit. And especially for a holiday turkey, because it's that special meal. And when they taste that pasture-raised bird, when they cook it, and the experience is completely different, they see that value. And now they'll be a turkey customer year after year. And by direct marketing to them, having this relationship marketing, we, we create that story. And we create the story not only about what I'm doing in farming, but the story of the consumer and how they're feeding their family this food that is produced from the farm that they can come visit, that they can talk to the farmer. So the children grow up knowing who their farmer is. So those are the four, uh, four pieces that I farm with. Detach the land ownership from the farming, mobile infrastructure, modular infrastructure, and direct marketing. Wow, there is so much to talk about there, but let's reposition where you are because you're in British Columbia, you're in Vancouver Island, uh, and I think in especially in talking about food and production practices, it's important for people to get a sense of place. Where is it coming from? What do you have to work with? Because um, I'm not sure that you would do exactly the same thing that if you were out in a desert in Arizona, as you might do on Vancouver Island, British Columbia. So paint a picture, if you would. Yeah, so the the geographical context of where I am is uh, Vancouver Island is about, um, I think it's 650 miles long, a 1,000 kilometers long, and about 200 kilometers across, uh, was 150 miles across. And it's mostly mountains. So we are wedged between the mountains and the ocean. Now I'm on the inward side, so on the east side of Vancouver Island. So we're facing um, Seattle and Vancouver, the big cities on the mainland. It's a two-hour ferry ride over to the island. Now I live in a town with a population of about a hundred thousand, and then the big town at the south end of the island, two hours south of me, is about a million people. Um, and so we have very rainy weather, just like Seattle or Vancouver. Uh, we don't have a very harsh winter. You know, it, it might snow one day and it's melted in a week or something like that. Now, um, here, because we're wedged between the ocean and the mountains, there are a lot of very small farms. There used to be larger farms, but they've been broken up into small acreages. So the majority of the properties here are five to 10 acres and then a few 50 to 150 acre properties. So I focus on my main lease that I've had since 2019. And the one I spoke about in our original podcast was a five acre plot. And just for context, the going rate for lease, I pay or $200 per acre per year on that five acres. So I pay $1,000 lease on that. Now, the majority of my expansion is now onto the Klein Agri Health Center. 
which is uh, owned by Dr. John Klein, who has his little uh, integrated medical center there. Uh, he also ha has the Nanaimo Food Share is a nonprofit that operates on this land base. There's also a youth camp um, and a First Nations school that spends time there. So this is very much a community farm. And so his agreement with me is that anything that the other users are not managing or taking care of, that I am welcome to use and manage with my livestock. So this is a 50-acre property, and there are, uh, there's a 10-acre field that I'm doing most of my operations on right now. There's also a 20-acre bottom field, um, and then I have uh, about three acres of forest where I've started raising my pigs. So um, th this is kind of now now both of my properties back on to urban neighborhoods you know, suburban neighborhoods. It takes us five minutes to get from downtown Nanaimo or my house, which is um, by the hospital, uh, to cross cross the highway. And once you're on the other side of the highway, you're on in the rural neighborhood before the mountains. So we're very much urban farming. Um, and so I'm an urban regenerative livestock manager. Back to the products you're growing. So you have you have hogs, you have turkeys, you have chickens. You do you have the lambs now? My goal is to focus on the big five, the big five species that people eat, which is uh, industry broiler chickens, industry turkeys, because I want people to compare apples to apples with what they get in the grocery store. I raise heritage pork, which adds another level of not only is it forest raised, but it's also a heritage breed. Then I do have my flock of sheep that I have started, uh, and it is growing. I had uh, my first lambing this past year. And then soon I will add beef into the mix so that I'm providing uh, chicken, turkey, pork, lamb, beef, the big five that people consume. The problem is processing on Vancouver Island because we're isolated and we don't want to have to take our animals on the two hour ferry ride to the mainland. We only have small abattoirs or slaughterhouses that have been grandfathered along through regulation changes. And with every regulation change, some of these facilities closed down. Now to the point where even just in 2018, we had five red meat and five poultry facilities. Now accessible to the public, we only have two red meat facilities and three poultry facilities on the island. And so it is a real pinch. And so I cannot raise beef until we increase abattoir space, slaughter space on Vancouver Island. Um, and as you know, uh, we talk about often in Clubhouse, where we speak often, I am building my own poultry plant in order to fill the needs and the gaps left by two poultry plants that have closed as of December 2020. We need the service, a, a community service. Um, in, and so for me, my intention is to build a facility that is, is, it has the full abattoir license, which means that I can process unlimited quantity for for the whole community, including all of my own needs. The on-farm license has a limit of, it's called farm gate license in British Columbia, has a new limit as of October of 25,000 pounds. That, that isn't enough. You know, between my six pigs and the poultry I raised of, you know, um, I think I raised 1,200 broiler chickens and 80 turkeys last year. And I believe I raised or it was like 32,000 pounds of meat that I produced last year. 
And so I'm already exceeding that amount. So, so the volumes for the on-farm processing license is not enough, even for my own needs, much less trying to serve the community. Because a lot of families raise, you know, 30, 50, 100 broiler chickens for themselves and their friends. Uh, and, and someone needs to be doing that processing. And so for it to be profitable for me to build a business to do the processing for my own, well, I, I just need to build the service for the entire community. And it's going to be the same on the red meat side. As soon as I get my poultry plant open, and I'm just cutting through the red tape one step at a time here, uh, as soon as my poultry plant is open, I will shift my focus to building a red meat plant so we can increase capacity there because there's such a need for it here. Well, you have a big project in front of you. It just seems like it makes so much sense that it needs to go in the direction that you're talking about. Alternatively, I assume that consumers are just getting shipped in from the, you know, the large processors are shipping in chicken and beef and, you know, and pork uh, into, you know, Vancouver Island, like, like every other large city. So, and I'm, and so in a way that is the competition, but with your consumers, do you find that they are, um, well, explain, what do you think the motivation is? Why do people buy your products the, that you're growing instead of what they might typically find at the supermarket? There are three different motivations for people who want to eat better meat, but also for people who choose not to eat meat. So these are the same arguments that that uh, vegans and vegetarians will use against eating meat. First of all is the health, the health of humans consuming the product. So by raising animals in their natural habitat, allowing them to express their instincts, allowing them to have good lives will increase both the, the quality and the nutritional value of the meat. Mm-hmm. Second of all, is the ethics of how we raise animals, giving the animals a better life, not putting them into an industrial system that grows them faster, fatter, quicker, uh, putting them back outside to express their instincts creates a better life for them. And by doing small scale processing and decentralizing the processing industry, by having more small plants where we're not transporting our animals up and down the highway, whether it's a couple hours here on Vancouver Island or whether it's four hours and hundreds of miles on the mainland, we want to reduce the stress on those animals. Also, instead of putting them through an industrial line, we are individually taking each bird and putting it into the kill cone and doing the deed and spending attention on those final moments for each animal. And then the last piece of the three for why people eat this type of meat is is the environmental impact. And so by eating local and eating animals that come from a regenerative system, we it may even go beyond reducing our carbon footprint to having a negative carbon footprint because of the benefits of regenerative agriculture and our focus on land health and land management and carbon sequestration that if you're accessing meat from your community that was raised in a regenerative way, you could have a net negative impact with what you have on your plate. What about genetics? Uh, like you've, you've chosen heritage breeds. 
Do you find your consumers are interested in that? Do they do they know something about it? And and that when you start talking about the unique breeds of, for example, you were talking about the hogs that are that you're using, you're using heritage breeds. Um, how much awareness is there from the people that are buying your product about the fact that that, in fact, is a difference as well? Yes, and as I mentioned, I use the same industry birds for my poultry, for my chicken and turkeys, so that the customer can compare apples to apples and see the vast difference between the chicken that they get from the grocery store and the chicken they get from me. I literally buy from the same hatchery as what Island Farmhouse, the vertically integrated uh, Vancouver Island brand. I missed that. You know, when you were saying that earlier, I should have interrupted you because I wasn't quite sure what you meant when you said industry birds. Right. Uh, so it's so, kind of the commodity. It's kind of like the mainstream, what most people are using. So that the difference really is, like you say, what they're fed, how they're fed, their pasture raised, and so forth. So that right. makes sense. And the same with a Christmas turkey. When people are buying a $150 Christmas turkey, they want it to damn well be what they expect for a turkey. Like if you give them a heritage bird that's extra dark meat, there's no light meat on it, it has small breasts, like they're going to be disappointed. But if you give them an industry bird that is exactly what they expect from every turkey for the past 25 years, but the quality is so much different by being raised in a pasture-based system, then they're going to be so very satisfied. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to uh, pork, adding that level of a heritage breed pig that is something that people very much appreciate. Now, not only is it the benefits of the pasture-based model, but they also have those benefits of thinking back to those hogs that you know grandmother raised, or maybe from the old country, or maybe from back east or in the prairies where where their family raised you know hogs way back when. A lot of my customers are you know closer to your age than closer to my age, closer to retirement than closer to uh, their university careers. And so they have those memories of of before the industrialization uh, and those memories of old family farms. Now, it's the same with the sheep. The sheep, I use a hair sheep. And so I've just gotten my first harvest back and we do, did these sausages and they don't have that lamb lanolin taste. And, and it's a wonderful example of, you know, first of all, when you don't run grain through a ruminant animal, well, they don't have those negative uh, exacerbated additional tastes. Now, when it comes to beef, I will also probably be using more of a heritage breed. And at this point, I'm debating whether I will do exclusively grass finished or whether I will have both options. So if customers want exclusively grass finished, they can have that. But I will have a select bunch that we will finish probably on some kind of local heritage corn so that like, Roger, I know yourself, you prefer a corn finished beef because that's just the taste that you're used to and you prefer. And so many customers have that preference. And so perhaps in, once I move into beef, I may have both options, have a select few that I finish on corn for those customers that want the benefit of the pasture raised animal, but still want that corn finished flavor. Right, right. You know, it's, it's just so inspiring what you're doing. And, and I'm wondering, Ben, you and I get on Clubhouse, and and I think some of the people listening here have probably been on Clubhouse as well. I wonder what you've noticed. Uh, are you finding in these conversations, as I sometimes have, that are 
other people that are on similar journeys as you are to uh, change their their processing. Um, I'm just curious what what do you think about the conversations about what we're talking about today when from that vantage point of participating in clubhouse conversations? I really enjoy Clubhouse because it allows me to advance my education and learn the other side of things. All of my research and what led me to your podcast um, has been focused on the regenerative agriculture movement, but I need to find ways to be unbiased and to understand the other side, the conventional, the commodity, the industrial agriculture model. And so through Clubhouse, we have made friends with people across North America who are conventional producers of the livestock that I raise. And it has allowed me to learn about their practices, learn about their challenges, learn about the places where they are stuck in one way of production and how they don't want to escape or they can't escape that, um, but also where they take pride in their practices and where they see the advantage of their practices. And it opens my eyes to those things that were kind of said to be bad in the regenerative agriculture movement, well, there are uh, there is give and take there, and and becoming unbiased, I have become an advocate. We always talk about an agriculture advocate, an advocate for both sides. So, the thing that I always say is when we're talking an industry and sustainability, and how how agriculture always comes under scrutiny for being one of the largest contributors to greenhouse gases. But name one other industry that has the potential to sequester carbon. And so when we talk about the the emissions from agriculture, well, we can't compare that directly to the emissions from transportation because transportation has no capacity of sequestering carbon. But when we talk about the emissions from agriculture, the emissions from agriculture creates a product of whether it's a grain crop, a vegetable crop, or the the uh, feed and fodder for animals, that is a plant in the ground that is sequestering carbon, that is using photosynthesis to draw energy out of the sky and store it deep underground. And so all of agriculture has that potential to sequester carbon. You know, there are a lot of critics and you run into critics in Clubhouse as well. And I've really appreciated hearing your conversation. So you've gotten into some discussions where you've been in rooms with uh, people that are vegans and some that are just really opposed to both livestock production, and particularly the fact that livestock are slaughtered at some stage to be able to produce produce meat. I'm wondering how you feel about those conversations, because I think you've done an, an excellent job in telling a story, telling the story of the kind of production practices you have. I sometimes wonder whether it makes any difference, uh, uh, because I get involved in those conversations as well. But I'm not sure if I've ever seen evidence of changing minds. I, I, I hope you could dissuade me of that perspective. I often say that I am on the same side as vegans and vegetarians. If we take a wheel of acceptance, one being someone who does not care where their meat comes from or what happens to the animals, and 10 being the loudest and proudest of the vegan 
uh, advocates and protesters. Well, my job is to take someone from one and move them to two, three, and four to where they're starting to think about where their meat comes from and choosing a better option, which is what I I produce. So because I'm an animal lover, a sustainability advocate, um, and people continue to eat meat, well, I am going to produce meat in the most sustainable, in fact, more than sustainable, a regenerative way. I'm going to treat the animals from the very first day they are born when I get them all the way to me being the one having my hand in the slaughter industry to make sure that is done right. Now, now for a vegetarian, they're trying to take someone from the level four where I get people to and move them to five, six, seven, and then for a ve- vegan to take them from seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Um, now, the problem in Clubhouse is that we have tens fighting against ones. Now, the only frustration that I have on Clubhouse with these conversations is that uh, people will come into a conversation and they will be uh, kind of derailing our positive conversation. So for example, if I'm hosting a room on regenerative agriculture and we're trying to have a productive conversation about the ways we can sequester carbon through the use of livestock, and now the conversation gets derailed to the conversation of the ethics of eating meat or not, well, that's not productive because you're talking to, you're, you're taking people who choose to raise meat for the purpose of uh, land benefit and a better option, talking to people who just are opposed to it. And, and I think what a lot of the people who come into our rooms who choose not to eat meat say is that they very much appreciate what I am doing. They respect what I'm doing because I share the same values as them. And that's the thing. We share so many of the same values. Uh, now we just need to uh, be cautious about uh, not derailing each other's conversations so that we can use Clubhouse as a tool to be productive and move forward. And and I very much enjoy going and sitting in those vegan rooms uh, because I learn as much there as I do in our agriculture rooms. Um, and 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 I've been finding lately that I go into Clubhouse and there's so many other topics that I'm not at all interested in that because the values of the vegan and vegetarian community align so much with my own, that's where I'd rather be when I'm on Clubhouse instead of talking about what Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are doing. You know, I really appreciated that what you just were saying about how you can look at the whole spectrum of go like from one to 10 and so forth. And your goal in some of these conversations is to help somebody from, say, they're at number two and take them to number three, not take them to number 10. Uh, That's a good way to look at it. Uh, Another way that I've heard is to a real conversation to take place. uh, Somebody has to be listening and that uh, there's a difference between hearing and listening and to to really kind of listen and appreciate where somebody's coming from. Sometimes we hear that. Oftentimes we don't. Oftentimes people are talking their point of view very uh, aggressively and arguing about something or another, but they're not slowing down and listening. And and so one thing that strikes me about why you're so effective, Ben, in these communications is you you connect with them. You you kind of respect the different point of view. You seem to, you empathize. You say, I hear where you're coming from and you can kind of get with them and then then come back and you explain the story. And then maybe they're more at ease to, you know, again, I think respect what you're trying to do and see what you might have in common. So that's that's a unique talent. You do it very well, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. And and I think my advantage is that I come from a point where 
when we talk about things like this Proposition 12 that threatens the industrial uh, uh, livestock confinement agriculture industry, or in in when we talk about the um, the UN um, treaties on uh, First Nations land usage, where it would threaten private land ownership, where agricultural land could be given back to the First Nations bands. Um, People who are in industrial agriculture, they are threatened by that. Their their industrial confinement agriculture systems have to be upended to adhere to these new systems. Or private landowners uh, here in my community are scared that their land is going to be given back to the to the First Nations, and and the First Nations won't like what they're doing with it. Well with the systems that I operate with, you know, I'm not concerned about those confinement agriculture regulations because I'm already far exceeding them in animal welfare. I probably will have to take minor changes, but I have a nimble system. My whole um, modular mobile systems are to be nimble. And then on the other side of the land usage, I basically lease my land. And one of my priorities for doing so is because I don't believe that I deserve to be owning this land that was stolen from the First Nations. And so um, one of the motivations why I do lease my farmland is because it's not mine to own. It is the it is the unceded territories of the First Nations people that are here. So, you know, I say give the land back to the uh, First Nations with this UN treaty thing. I think they will be quite happy with the management that I'm doing. <laughs> You know, I, I would think they would be as well. And and I think one thing I have to quickly add, too, is that uh, in this process of conversations that we have about how our food is produced, we do run into really good operations of all sizes and shapes. And and I think some of the people, Ben, that we both have talked to on in Clubhouse include some that are fairly, fairly large scale, typical commercial enterprises, but they're very thoughtful about their production practices. And it's one of those things that I'm starting to think about is what differentiates us from what we may think of as the industrial model is almost more of a mindfulness of somebody that cares that's in the middle of it, that's looking at the resources, looking at the animals, caring about uh, how they're doing things. And it's not just, you know, just adding up the numbers, because when it comes to the most extreme of kind of uh, industrial type practices as we refer to them it's um you know the temptation starts getting let's crowd more into this let's push it more let's push to the edges and and when i hear you describe your operation again i would i'm tempted to use the term mindfulness as you're you're you know, you're, you know what's right, but you, um, you're observing it, you're with your, your livestock, you're with your farming practices, you're interacting directly with uh, consumers, and everything about that feels right. But it just feels like you have to come to it not only with an ambition to go in the direction you have, but also that willingness to, uh, I think, to listen, observe, um, and, and mindfully doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that absolutely for me, the ethics of what I'm doing is a primary motivation. And for a lot of millennials, they want to do good in the work that they're doing. Uh, and so I think even with our friends in the uh, more commodity based systems, we also see that their values are aligning with that and they are making small changes where they can 
to align with their values and and create more opportunities, whether it's increasing their profitability through direct marketing. And in regenerative agriculture, we need to build profits in order to be able to reinvest in more good. And so whether it's you know direct marketing or making small movements in in how they manage their land to be more regenerative um you know i think these we're all moving in the right direction and and i think that as we see a a change over in the farming uh the generation here coming uh and it will be a big shift because the average age of farmers in america is over 60 and in canada it's just below that you know, there is going to be a big uh, outswell of the tide is going out of current farmers. And so the when the tide comes back in, you know, there will be a lull where there's going to be a shortage of farmers. But I think that when that that new generation comes back in, probably more of them will be of the mindset that I have where they're coming in with the regenerative and sustainability models as their motivation. Um, and we will see the transitioning of the CAFO systems, maybe not completely out, but with new management systems, new creative ideas coming in, because we all have the same goal. We want healthy, happy animals. We want to produce as much food as we can for our communities. And we want to make really good tasting and really good healthy food. You know, Ben, as we wrap up, couple things. I think one, we might invite people to try out Clubhouse if they haven't, because they'll find us there on Farm to Table Talk and some other agriculture discussions. So people that are listening to the podcast that aren't in yet, uh, they can come and then they can interact with you directly and ask questions and comments in some of the rooms that you're in or or I'm in on Clubhouse. But the other thing, just to just to wrap up, Ben, given what we're discussing um, what do you hope consumers take from these conversations? Uh, because it, it seems to me the people that listening to what we're talking about here include people that can be shopping for foods produced in the, in the, the ways that you, you have them, can include uh, restaurants or supermarkets. It can also include farmers that would like to change their ways and try new approaches. But there's also a, a, some that are where you were a few years ago that maybe would like to be doing what you're doing and haven't really taken um, taken the step. So in takeaway for any of those audiences, I'll let you just take your choice. What do you hope that they um, that they take from what we've said or these kinds of ideas Again, from a consumer or a farmer or somebody in the food chain. I think we need to become very proud and and invest in our interest and our passion and our our belief that there are better farming systems. So the same way we have brand loyalty to Honda or Ford or to iPhone or over Android, let's spend more on our food in order to support what we believe in. Let's let's have fun by looking up what restaurants in our local area are using local regenerative farmers for their sourcing. Let's go there and enjoy that and 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 spend a little bit more because that's important to us. Let's think about on a daily basis like, hey, I'm putting this dinner together tonight and what what can I do to make sure that it has some regenerative ingredient? Like, can can I go to my farmer's market? Can I make it my weekly 
you know, like I go to the gym on a regular basis, I'm going to go to the farmer's market once a week as well to do as much of my shopping there as possible. So, so prioritizing that, you know, it's one thing to talk about. It's one thing to learn about it. It's one thing to watch the Netflix documentaries about it. It's one thing to want to be a farmer, but by taking that step to, to invest, invest in, in your own health by choosing this food, invest in your community by supporting these small businesses, invest in the environment by choosing food that actually sequesters carbon. Um, or if your desire is to become a farmer yourself, invest in whatever way possible to spend some time working on someone else's farm or starting in your own living room with a single basil plant on your kitchen table whether it or getting backyard chickens if you can do so you know whatever that is take that first step because the next step beyond that will be so much easier well and i think the other thing is keep an eye on ben glassen because you've taken a lot of those steps yourselves and you've you are kind enough to share some of your own journey and we wish you the best ben and i'm i'm really grateful that you've been a listener and a guest on farm to table talk thank you Thank you, Roger. Now, may I just close with one more thing that's heavy on my heart? Sure. Our last podcast was based around my uh, my interest and my following of how Joel Salatin has, has been an influence for the entire regenerative agriculture community. And so much of Joel Salatin's writings have been very influential and very important to me. I recently just read his latest title, which is Your Successful Farm Business on, uh, on Audible. Uh, you can also get a paperback copy. And that's the follow-up to You Can Farm, which was written 20 years ago. And it really, these two books can inspire anyone to get into this farming. Now, what's heavy on my heart is that Joel Salatin recently came out publicly saying that he does not believe in systemic racism. And I don't know any of the details around what he said or why he said it, but his publisher has dropped him. And, and for me, that's difficult because I live in British Columbia where we have first started uncovering the uh, mass graves around residential schools. And, and with everything that's going on around the world, we see that, especially in Western countries, systemic racism is alive and well. We often think that it ended years ago when we had all these you know, uh, human rights um, uh, campaigns and things like that, but no, it's alive and well. Um, and though I love so much of what Joel Salatin says, I absolutely disagree with that. And, and it's heavy on my heart that we have that disagreement. I will continue to follow Joel because it, he does add so much value to the farming community. And just because we disagree on one thing, um, I won't end my following of what he does, but it is heavy on my heart. And I want to publicly say that. Well, I appreciate your saying that. And I think it should be of concern. And I like the way you expressed it, though, too, that he has things, even though we can be troubled by what's reported to be these these comments that he's made, um, there's still a lot that we can learn from his example. And, and uh, you know, who knows? He's probably on a journey himself, just like we all are. So, and on these journeys... We're going to have to check in with you, Ben, more than every couple of years. It's probably uh, uh, because the, the stories just go on. And the story in your own story is a little different now than it was a couple of years ago. It's going to be a little different a couple of years from now. So we wish you the best. And, and again, thank you for sharing these views and these perspectives here on Farmer Table Talk. 
Thank you, Roger. We'll see you in Clubhouse on Wednesdays at noon Pacific time for your room. And Thanks. I hope to be hosting a room for Farmers Able Talk in the near future. I hope you do too. We're going to make that happen. Thank you, Ben. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 